This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. excited to have all of you here and to have this conversation with all of you in the room. Um, and also, we're just excited to have you here. This is the first time that you're in the Bay Area, is that yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, that's pretty exciting to me. Yeah. Yes. Was, yes. It is pretty significant to me because uh, I, I would say that mine, one of my main influences is uh, Judith Butler, mm-hmm. who is teaching here in Berkeley. So I'm, 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 I'm happy yet to be here. Absolutely, yeah. A lot. It's a place that houses a lot of really important thinkers, a lot of culture workers, a lot of organizers. I know, in great history. Absolutely. And we're excited to have you here specifically tonight because this is a really live time, right? And it's, it's a time. An interesting time, I would I've, say, yeah. yeah. And it's a time where, but every single day, we're engaged in this decision of whether or not to stand up, speak out, and to resist, or to stay silent. And you, through your body of work, through your actions, through your speech, through your writings, show so unapologetically that you refuse to be silent. Yeah? Um, trying to do my best. But you know, as we discussed before, and actually we had a lot of conversations we before, did. like it just like, for the last you two hours, <laughs> and it was it was unrecorded. Uh, but um, I, I was we were discussing this important thing about uh, preserving your um, like empty space for creativity because you're bombarded by news and which are not particularly great. So you just feel miserable, helpless, and you know, like you, you can't achieve any changes. So it, it's really important for me. I don't know if it works for you or not, but for me, I found out that it's really important to preserve the, a little bit of empty space to um, create something, because if you will trash it with uh, all kinds of bad news, um, you will never give a chance to the seed of creativity to start to grow. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I know sometimes you just need to put on a shield and, and like, uh, hide somewhere. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is connected to this idea of silence when silence can be something that is generative, that yeah. puts in the space that we're able to reflect and create, and then silence when it actually contributes to the oppression of others, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's really important to curate, um, curate your time, attention, and information, especially now. Yeah. Because, yeah, we, we're really just bombarded by shit. Real talk, absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd like to start, actually, if you wouldn't mind, talking a little bit through your histories. I would love to hear more about who your influences were, how you came to become politicized, mm-hmm. and the different ways kind of throughout the trajectory of you coming to this place that you are now as an artist. I think it started from my family, um, and you know, I, I, I feel like I'm pretty lucky because I'm thinking about all those people who are um, living in families that are not politically involved, and yeah. so like, if, you're, if institutions are like 
school, um, they're failing to um, involve people politically, then it means that if your family is not political, then you're just fucked. Um, but um, my family luckily was political, so my father, he was really involved in Perestroika in the 90s, and he had really great hopes for Russia to be a free country. But it's, um, you know, he, so he was disappointed when Putin came to power, and uh, he was, uh, he lost his motivation, so for, for a while he didn't take part in politics, and then I, I somehow, um, Re reimbursed this interest in him. So at some point, I just, my father called me and they, you know, uh, where I am, and like, where? I, I'm near you at the rally. I'm like, whoa, really? <laughs> like, I, I would never think that it's important for you. Um, but anyway. So, so wait, I want to back up to that point. So you, let's go back. <laughs> you, res you were able to re-spark this I was, yeah. momentum in your father. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? How do you think that happened? I just started to make all these actions and uh, my father, um, he was really supportive of most of them, and uh, he he actually co-wrote uh, Punk Prayer with mm. me, and uh, I'm did. like, oh yeah, like I, I have to be thankful to my dad that I ended up in two years in jail, because it was actually. <laughs> Yay, dad! <laughs> <laughs> it was his idea to um, uh, to write holy shit uh, as a chorus, and I know it was like. <laughs> And it was the main accusation when we were in the court, like you, you combine um, Virgin Mary and uh, you know religious topics and holy shit because it's just you're not supposed to do it. So yeah, my father is pretty radical. And when I was eight years old, he he just um, he said to me, "Do you really want to read this Cosmopolitan magazine? If you want, you can." Because he would never, you know, he would never prohibit anything. So he he would give me total freedom, but. He he go for like he's like it's not it's not really it's not really cool to read Cosmopolitan magazine because you're old enough like you're 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 eight already like it was fine when you were seven <laughs> 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 and so he, he gave me political magazines and of course I didn't understand anything but I I wanted to be cool for my dad and like as a, and like yeah I started to read it. And then, you know, feminism came pretty early because mm. I think it's the most natural thing for a girl to be a feminist and actually for a boy too because, you know, as we all know, um, patriarchal system oppresses not just women but men too mm. because like, you have to be like a man. Like, what does it mean? Like, I, I, I cannot be vulnerable. We all have, we all have to have uh, ability to be vulnerable. It's mm. like just the main pleasure in life to be open to things. Anyway... So, and I was, um, I was at uh, my class uh, and uh, my physics teacher, she wanted to um, compliment me in front of a class, you know, that's the worst. So it started like, and, and then she, she was like, oh, Nadia is so good, she's the best student in the class. And, um, you know, when she will grow up, she will probably will be um, a wife of the president. And I'm like, why wife? I'm like, I, Hold on a second. I want to be president. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the point when I understood that something is wrong about gender roles in our society because it just... And I think as kids, we start from really clear point of view on things. And uh, that's why in my recent work, I, I'm talking a lot from 
kids' perspective, like from, from eight, nine years old kids' perspective, because they're, they still see the world super clear. They don't, they don't care about these bullshit gender roles that are imposed, and they see world more like a palette, but not, not a bunch of stereotypes that they need to fit in. So, and I have eight, uh, nine years old daughter, and uh, I'm trying to do my best to, 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 to tell her that actually it is the best way to keep this clarity and openness mm -hmm. through the whole of your life. And that's what I'm trying to do, and we're trying to help each other. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. You even, you spoke once about when you were pregnant, being worried that you were just going to be seen as a reproduction machine at uh, that point. Yeah. Which any, any person of any gender that carries a child, I think that thought comes into your mind, right? So how do you counter that mythos, both in yourself and also in raising your daughter? Um, and it's, it is a real danger that you're facing, especially in a country like Russia, because, mm. I, I mean, I know that things are not ideal here in America, but in Russia, um, it's that bad, so if you're trying to shake hands with men, he's like, what the fuck? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just trying to greet you, that's fine, it's just like, I'm trying to be um ethical person, uh, and they d just don't get it. Be this idea of equality is not really introduced in their heads. Mm -hmm. So, um, and every time when you're with kid on your hands and you're trying to really talk with somebody, they're, they're, they're not talking with you, they're talking with somebody who, you, who you're supposed to just like, and like, no, I mean, I, I, I'm still a person. And um, yeah, yeah. Th th this is a battle. But uh, I'm actually really thankful to my fate, to my life that I had to went through that because it um, made me a stronger feminist. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, and also, too, that you had this wonderful example in your father, who mm -hmm. was constantly helping you to counter that narrative. Yeah. Did you notice a difference between you and your classmates, for example, or other friends that you might have had, where you were kind of like, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> why are you reading Cosmopolitan? You're too old for that. I, know, I, I, <laughs> I was a nerd, so I was, just, I was just hanging out by myself and reading mm -hmm. books, you know, while other kids were playing, so I was that person. And then it, it, it's even stranger that I ended up doing radical actions. But I think I, 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 I was kind of replacing it, so normally you would do that, all this hooligan, hooliganism when you're a kid. And I was like, when I reached my... 18 years old, I decided, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I'll do that. Now it's time. Now it's time, What yeah. was your first act of hooliganism? Uh, that's a good question. Um, it happened in school, and we were learning about um, 1917 in Russia, and I was really uh, excited by that. And you know, like, the, it's really interesting like, when, when Putin and um, the Head of Russian Orthodox Church is saying these terrible things about women on like the the main television channels, like they're supposed to just be reproductive organs, but not like not making career. Mm -hmm. They're really saying that. Um, and w when all that is going on, when you're looking back in 1917, you see that Russia was among first countries that gave the women right to vote. Mm -hmm. And it's such an like it, it, it is weird, and you want to just. Um, um, remind um, your fellow citizens mm -hmm. that you know you're actually living in pretty progressive thinking country and it, it used to happen and we had right to make abortions before Stalin banned it in 1936 and um, and so we, we just um, 
took brushes and uh, brought some posters and uh, we would make a rally on schoolyard. And then I had problem with my director and the principal of my school. He he asked me what the fuck was it, and uh, and because I was a nerd, I, mm. I I just quoted all uh, possible philosophers in in, in my paper, <laughs> and he was so mad. He was like he wanted to uh, he wanted to have apologize or something mm. like no I don't know I didn't mean it like. <laughs> But so then I made the same thing when they put me in jail, and, and, and then I was supposed to say, oh, I'm sorry, I am apologize, I didn't mean it, actually, I like Vladimir Putin, and I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't do it again, yeah, and I ended up with all my closing statements where, where I again quoted all these philosophers, so nothing really changes in my life. <laughs> yeah, nothing changes. Well, and also it sounds like philosophy and Philosophical thought is something that's an underpinning to the justification behind all of your beliefs from yeah, a young age. Yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, I, I thought when I was a kid, um, I thought that my like main career in life will be do nothing. Um, so I, I, I never planned so to. So good, <laughs> right? I never planned to have a job. And it's funny, my daughter, I never told it to her, but now she's like, I'm asking her, what do you want to do? She's like, nothing. And like, I know, I know what you should do. Then you want to be an artist because they they, they could just they could do nothing all day long, and everybody will be like, oh wow, that's cool. This um, <laughs> even even best it could to be conceptual artist because when I was 14 years old. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I learned that trick. So uh, the guy, one conceptual artist, came to our town and uh, he was giving a lecture, like I'm giving now. So he, he was just telling me about his life, how he, he lives, and, and I, was, I was like, wow, that's, that's a great way to spend life. So I decided to be philosopher and conceptual artist. Ah. <laughs> it's all a means to an end. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you know it, you know it's it totally more, probably you. better than I am. <laughs> um, yeah, so I um, I entered Moscow State University um, and uh, started study philosophy and uh, you know somehow en entered it without giving bribes, which is almost impossible mm -hmm. because everybody around me in my school when I was in in my town in Siberia, they were like, yeah, you have no money and you don't have connections. You will never enter this university. And I, I have like my, my main quality, I think, stubbornness, just because of really stupid stubbornness. So I, I just went there and I entered. Um, and yeah, and since that, I'm doing nothing. And that's, you're engaged in the art of doing nothing, clearly. <laughs> I, I'm dedicated to do nothing. I mean, it's not like, like I'm workaholic, but at the same time, I think we, um, we are too trapped in the idea that we have to have a job. Mm -hmm. And um, the whole thing with um, student debt here in the United States just makes no sense to me. Absolutely. It means that you will never be able to live your own life. It means mm -hmm. that you, you're preparing for entering university, then you're studying hard, and then after that you're, you're a slave to, to, to the system, you're a slave, you have to go to work for corporations, you cannot, you cannot work for charity because you have to get all this money. Yeah. That's strange for a person like me who studied for free, and um, my government even gave me dormitory. Um, and we, we don't have, you know, really good government, as you probably know, but still, it, it works. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, it was the only one chance for me to get out of my uh, small Siberian town and go to Moscow to live in this state dormitory. Mm -hmm. It was like one place among like five people sitting on my head, but still I had a chance to live in Moscow. 
And um, yeah, and it looks like the inequality is raising and like what I see around me when I'm traveling in the States, really strange because it, it seems to me that if you are from poor, poor family that you have really little chances to get to college education hmm. and it shouldn't be like that. Well, you have a chance. You just have to take on massive amounts of student loan debt that they're happy to give you yeah. without telling you all of the terms in order to do so. And but then you have to work at Goldman Sachs and it means like your life is over. <laughs> <laughs> and then you become a shriveled dead thing inside. Yes, it's I true. Have, I have a friend who ran from Goldman Sachs. He, he studied, I think, in two colleges. So he, he did his best to get there. And then after one year, there, he was like, no, I, I cannot handle it because it means that I'm burying myself with one year after another year because it just, the system just forces you, you to be a douchebag. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <And> he, <laughs> yes. He's just naturally not a douchebag. So he, you know. Yeah. <laughs> This ties back into what you were talking about in the beginning, though, because this is all about, ultimately, the more debt we have, the more we are likely to be indentured service to production, to this idea of production, right? Like, ultimately, I have to go, I have to get my paycheck, I have to make sure I'm providing in order to pay off everything else, and then I'll get to my student debt, possibly after a while. Yeah. And you're, we're also in a place right now that's experiencing tremendous wealth inequality and mass gentrification and a huge housing crisis that's pe pushing people out of their homes. So this idea of, like you're talking about, you know, we're, we're talking about this a little bit flippantly, like making a career out of doing nothing, or more <laughs> importantly, having space in order to even be able to conceive of a creative thought. Exactly. Is this thing that is literally our creativity is being ripped out from underneath us in the interest of capital. That's true. I mean, I, I, I think you're so right about it. I, I feel like we're we are living in an uh, epoch of uh, crisis of imagination. Mm -hmm. And, you know, partly we have a uh, crisis of political imagination, which means to me um, that we kind of think of uh, alternatives or, you know, we were thinking about them so modestly, so we, we, we don't, mm -hmm. like, if you're a leftist, you still trapped an idea that capitalism is, capitalism is the best possible system. It's not. Um, and uh, why don't we build alternatives? And it looks like it's, it's pretty obvious at this point that neoliberal version of globalism failed. So, and that's why we have race, in my opinion, that's why we have race of uh, right-wing populism, because they're kind of providing some uh, answers on people's questions, but actually they don't give a flying fuck about people like Trump. Like, like, like he, he, would never, he never spoke with those people workers. Yeah. Um, so it's our job right now to just um, make our imagination alive again and just come up with uh, alternatives and speak directly to people and to, to, to show them that we actually can make their lives better. And, you know, coming back to our another point of our previous conversation, creating alternative institutions. Yeah. So if your government are failing to provide help and education, help to people or, you know, shelters for domestic uh, victims of domestic violence, then, yeah, it's our time to take it in our own hands and uh, just to prove to all those people who possibly voted for Trump that actually the truth in, is on our side. Mm -hmm. we, we, we really care about you. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, we're going to step by step, but it will not be like... Uh, it, will, it will not happen just in one click, unfortunately, because, you know, sometimes as an activist, you believe you start to be uh, trapped in this messiah complex. You think yeah. that I will go to Raleigh yeah. now and everything will change in a second. It yeah. will not, unfortunately, so you yeah. have to work, you know, yeah. for a lot of time.
but it's whole, it's being able to hold the vision that another world is possible, to take yeah. a phrase from the Zapatistas, yeah? That like to be able to hold that belief in our minds mm -hmm. is one of the most powerful instigators to be able to get us in action to work and build towards that future. Of and course. so I want to turn the conversation a little bit more towards your, your work and the beginning of your work with Voina and then into Pussy Riot mm -hmm. and then the work that you're doing now. One of the ways, I think, to um, develop this idea of imagination out of this crisis of imagination is to intervene in public space, right? Yeah. You work a lot with humor, you work a lot with uh, radicalism and punk aesthetic and like crashing into a space and really intervening on the entire environment around you. And I wonder if you can talk about that as a strategy to inspire this idea of imagination and being able to envision other futures. You know, decision came um pretty naturally because we were uh, just kicked out of all um, legal spaces. So, I mean, if you're, <laughs> if you're against Putin and Russia, you don't have a chance to, to, to have event like this one. Yeah. Because, you know, um, owners of this theater would have a call from local prosecutor's office and the prosecutor would say, um, do you really want to go to jail? Oh, or you want to cancel this event, and so he will cancel this event, or she. Um, yeah, and so that's why we understood that all the only spaces that we have is public spaces. And, you know, we've done a lot of work in the Moscow subway just because it's really cold in Russia, so like, during the winter <laughs> you want to be inside, but you still want to be in public space, so it's like, we, we, like, yeah, that's the reason why we ended up in subway. That makes total sense. <laughs> Or, yeah, we, um, we intervened in a um, couple of museums and theaters too and fashion shows just because, um, I mean, even if you're critical about, um, you know, not personally about Putin, but uh, even if you're critical about the whole situation in Russia, if you're talking about corruption, if you're talking about LGBTQ rights, um, you, you're fucked in terms of your... Um, um, relationship with institutions. Mm -hmm. So that's how we ended up on streets. But then um, we found out that we are in the best position than uh, institutional artists mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we can freely decide um, what we want to get and we just go there and we get it just in a second without getting all the stupid permissions and stuff. So we got the best stages, um, you know, and we, we could get whatever we want. That's it. I mean, like, like I, I, I don't know. Like, just people think that that, that there are like big thought behind it. You're just kicked out of all places, <laughs> and you were cold, so you went into the subway. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what else? Um, I, I actually, I, I would really want to perform uh, in prisons um, because I, I think um, I read a myth um, of. Um, you know, the band Angelic Upstarts, uh, Oi Punk band, they were one of our uh, big influencers. And uh, I read once, uh, once a story that they made a concert in jail because um, they convinced um, the head of this jail that uh, their name, Angelic Upstarts, is the name of Christian band. <laughs> because it's angelic, angelic, it's something about religion. Right. So <laughs> they got into jail and, and they performed a song which is called Police Suppression. <laughs> and I, and then later I was said that probably it was just mythology. They didn't do it. I don't know for sure if they did it or not. I don't really care. But they, that made us wanting to go to streets. <laughs> yeah, that makes absolute sense. <laughs> 
So you began, so tell me about the initial murmurings of Pussy Riot, kind of how it came together. Um, we, um, we formed a group of artists who were not really happy with art establishment because we thought that they were more like jellyfishes, but not real artists. Because I think art, like the, the, the real art is um, working with the spirit of time. And if you are an artist in Russia, you don't, if, and you, if you're living with open eyes, then you have no chance not to be political artists. <laughs> so, um, and... Um, we just, we just created a gypsy band who had no place to leave and we were living by uh, shoplifting. Um, they quit. It was part of our ideology, actually. We didn't, uh, we didn't want to spend money at all. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard but fun. And um, so we started uh, from actions like uh, kissing police women, yeah. for example, yeah, on streets of Moscow, because we wanted to... Uh, we wanted to just involve them somehow in our world that we were doing. And we were storming White House of Russian Federation. We have our own White House. Um, you're not the on, only one nation that has White House. Uh, and, and so we really, got... Really, we're not the innovators <laughs> of all thought and everything? I don't understand. Yeah. yeah. We, we have actually a pretty strong tradition of Russian exceptionalism. So it's not a unique American thing. <laughs> So, um, and um, we got a laser projector, um, mm -hmm. and um, we, we projected uh, skull and bones on uh, the building of Russian parliament, the giant one, like 40 meters long on the whole building, and then it was a sign for us to start storming, and they, they're, they're really not super brave people, they surrounded themselves with super high, like six meters long uh, fence. So our job was to jump over this fence and just to jump, uh, just to run through territory, and then, no, leave. Um, and um, the, the idea behind this action was that they are just seem super protected, but actually, like, you know, just a bunch of idiots can jump over this fence and do whatever they want on the right. territory. But it was our idea. We didn't know how it will go because, it, I mean. <laughs> Anything could happen, but we did it. We did it, and uh, we accidentally broke a camera there. Um, you know, but it wasn't it wasn't our idea, but we just it happened accidentally. Um, what else? We were invading police stations and we were hanging pictures in police stations, and I think it's another great place to expose things. And he told me before about your work about about victims of domestic violence, uh, sexual assault. Yeah. Um, and you're projecting on Oakland Police, Police Department. Department. That's right. pretty great. I mean, like, that, that's what we should do. And yeah, just, we have to take back the streets. And it seems so obvious to me at this point, because, you know, when I'm walking down the street in New York, I can't even put my ass somewhere without a guard coming to me and saying, like, no, it's private property. And, like, what is not private property? Because everything mm -hmm. is private property. And it looks like, looking back in the history, like, 60s and 70s, people knew how to fight back and how to get back their territories. And especially here, like, like in San Francisco, I think you, you do remember it much better than I do. But I, I, I'm pretty inspired by 1968 and uh, the way how they reshaped the whole cultural landscape and the way how we treat 
streets, they really took it back. But then, you know, Reagan, Thatcher's era came, and um, now it looks like we need to make it again. Mm. Take it back. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and another thing about political imagination that I wanted to say, um, that, you know, after fall of Soviet Union, it, it, it seemed to me like even um, political activists started to think just in one, um, one system um, model because they were like, oh, communism doesn't work, so yeah, we will try to change capitalism. But actually, you still can think about another alternative system, and they, you know, coming back to Zapatista's slogan, yeah, another world is really possible. But um, yeah, even without USSR in place, you still can think of another things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd like to hear about because I want to touch on eventually uh, what kind of movements you've been involved in here or organizing work you've been involved in here, kind of who's inspiring you. But before we get to that, I'd like to talk a little bit about how your work has changed, because it's had a trajectory, right? There was punk prayer, and then there was incarceration, and then the work post-incarceration, and then now. So how do you see the arc of that work? Again, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just more feeling things than um, than formulating concepts for myself. Mm -hmm. So, and that's how we ended up uh, in punk prayer. We just didn't feel like uh, we want Vladimir Putin to go for the third term. And I was crying for three days. Um, and then I was like, oh, I need to do something. It looks like art is the best psychotherapy, mm -hmm. at least for me, because it doesn't you don't have to spend a lot of money on that. Mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, it was interesting moment when uh, we ended up in court because uh, it was a place where you kind of be that provoking and that punk as you used to be before. And because I mean, you're speaking to the judge, and judge is really not into punk aesthetics. So <laughs> really, and he, and, he, <laughs> and he cannot wear masks because they're taking all the, your belongings from you, and you have just you know a t-shirt. And that's it. Um, so it was it was time when we when I had to learn how to be official. And uh, so after we got out of prison um, for one year, I was pretty official. So we would go to um, Senate of United States and uh, to European Parliament and to a British Parliament, and we were we were handling ourselves more like Russian politicians mm. than um, punk activists. But then, you know, in the end of this year, I found out that. I'm in major depression because mm. I just couldn't handle this type of aesthetics for myself. Yeah. I mean, technically, I can give uh, long official speeches, but I just don't really like it. I, li I like much more fragmented thinking and that what we have here right now. Yeah. And I, I just, uh, I'm writing a book right now, um, which is called Rules for Rules Breakers, and my editor is having really terrible time, actually, I think, because so. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a bunch of images and, you know, like, short essays, and it doesn't have any organization in that, so, like, it's not, it's not just a conversation, it's just my life, but it's, it's kind of my principle, because I think that, you know, when you're treating your life as a puzzle, then you can build interesting, free-moving, beautiful pictures when you don't have this arc, when we were asking about. Mm -hmm. So it, yeah. it was more like natural flow. And uh, after 2014, when we were like 
alternative president of Russia. Yeah. And we even played in House of Cards where, where we were hanging with president of Russia. <laughs> we decided to go back to um, more like punk aesthetics. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, another important thing that happened after we were released from jail, we started to learn how to build these alternative institutions and uh, we uh, organized the Media Zona, which is one of the most important Russian uh, independent voices. And we started from covering law enforcement agencies and prisons and courts. Um, and then we started to grow. Now we have 20 people working in our office. And it was interesting. Um, interesting feeling for me because I, I couldn't believe, you know, I couldn't believe that we are just a bunch, bunch of activists and punks like, who, 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 like, who used to steal things from supermarket. We're organizing the whole media outlet and, you know, when uh, pro-Kremlin or Kremlin controlled media agencies are um, giving links to us because they really know that we could trust them, they could trust us. Like when they give links to us, it feels weird. It feels absurd. absurd. Like how how they can trust us, but they can't because we are really um, serious about fact checking. Fact, not fact checking. Fact checking. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, <laughs> Russians. That too. We're with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, so somehow we did it, but it was like. It was important for me to prove to ourselves and to other people that actually we never had um, any education in building medias or something like that. And we just spent two years in jail. And how those, if those people can create influential media outlet, it means that everybody can do it. <laughs> and so our question is like, why not a lot of people are doing the same things? And I think it's not uniquely for Russia, it works for America too, because you, it looks like you really need to have more sources of reliable information. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can you talk a little more practically just what Mediozona is and how it functions? Just um, so everybody knows. So, I mean, I, I guess the hardest part is to attract funds because it, when you want to, when you work um, full time, you have to have something to eat. Mm -hmm. So and we have 20 people who work like that. that. So uh, in our case, what we were doing, uh, we would make um, gigs or speaking engagements, right? And uh, we were collecting all this money and we put all this money to fund Mediazona. And, um, you know, in the last few years, we were doing a lot of things like that. So it, it means that you have to... You have to talk a lot, <laughs> and and then so you you'll find it was really different in in Russia. I mean, I, I I'm not sure that you can just take this experience and apply it to America yeah, we because it's that. pretty different. Yeah. In in 2014, we had um, pretty bad time for independent media outlets in Russia because partly because of. Putin felt empowered after Sochi Olympics, and and then he annexed Crimea, and then he felt danger because of the uh, situation in Ukraine. He felt like if something can happen in the country which is our neighbor, it means that something like revolution can happen in Russia too. Mm -hmm. So he felt like he need to just cut the throat of all independent media outlets. So we were in unique situation. We have a lot of hungry amazing journalists. Mm -hmm. So our job was to just 
organize all of them and give them space and uh, find a great editor-in-chief. And yeah. um, the way <laughs> how we picked our editor-in-chief, I, I met him actually a long, long time ago on one left forum. And the first question that he asked me was like, um, hi, are you from Radical Collective? I'm like, yeah, I am. And he was like, are you ready to burn police cars? And I'm like, whoa, that's a radical man. And <laughs> <laughs> So and and I know after after almost ten years we are, we made an institution with him. That's great. And so you know we, we even uh, we even have a registration somehow in in, in, in like, I mean we are official we are official media outlet. <laughs> we're not we're not punks anymore. Well, and another thing that we've done um, alongside with Media Zona, um, it it is organization to help prisoners. Uh, because when we were in prison, we were advocating for prisoners' rights because it was a pretty terrible system. And I think if you if you will take a look, I mean, I'm sure you were you did it. If you take a look at American prison system, it's not really great as well. And um, <laughs> so there are a lot of work to be done. And uh, yeah. And so yeah, we started our uh, advocating for uh, rights of prisoners when we were in prison. But it's easier, strangely, when you are inside of prison because you're kind of a human rights worker who has right to be there because I'm an inmate too, and they can get me out of there. <laughs> <laughs> and then <laughs> they tried because they were moving me from one prison to another because they just like we can't handle it anymore. <laughs> I was just keep writing things to press and. Guardian and to Times, and they, they were super unhappy. I ended up in prison in the end of my prison term in, in, in Siberia. Um, so they moved me to Siberia because they thought that maybe nobody will care about me when I'm in Siberia. But like, anyway, um, <laughs> I was pretty bad. So, uh, but yeah, when you're not inside of prison, you have to have an organization like a bunch of lawyers who can go to prison and check what's going on there. So it was another type of our activity. So we have two zones. First zone is Media Zona, mm -hmm. which is a media outlet. And second one is a Zone of Justice, mm -hmm. which is prisoners' right organization. So I mean, like, when I'm talking to people in San Francisco, actually, about politics, I feel like I'm bored. Like, like, <laughs> bored. <laughs> like seriously, <laughs> bored is my role model. And I'm like, and then... <laughs> <laughs> I was in prison, <laughs> and I had sexy time there, <laughs> and I, I did in fact, I had a couple of really great affairs, so I, I had not just bad time, but good time in prison too. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and this, like, that's like, I mean, you really have to fight for your joy because the government and, you know, all kinds of assholes, they all want to take your life from you and like all those people who want you just work and work or be in prison or be obedient or whatever, you just need to take back your joy. And that yeah. was the biggest challenge for me in prison. <laughs> take back joy every day. <laughs> yeah. I want to relate that also to fear, right? I think something that folks like across the board, there's righteous fear that needs to be felt right now. And you seem to have found this wonderful way to turn fear into strategies of resistance and resilience. So can you talk more about how that works for you? Um, I don't know, fear doesn't really work for me because I, 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 don't, I, I don't think it's um, it's constructive thing. I mean, you, you can be concerned with the situation, right? You, you don't like the situation. And then the next 
uh, move, you come on coming up with steps how to overcome it, and then you have a strategy in front of you, and you're super excited about that again, so you're happy, you're kind of in a shitty situation, but mm. you have a strategy how to get out of there, so you're like, yeah, I will take my shovel and dig my, uh, me out of the shit, like in David Lynch, Twin, Twin Peaks, you All know, right. remember okay. that golden, yeah. sh go golden shovel? Um, yeah. All around the Yes. I didn't... <laughs> Yeah, so I, 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 I mean, I, I don't like fear. Yeah, and I hear you that, like, you know, not liking fear, but fear is still the survival instinct. And mm -hmm. obviously, you know, for some folks, whether or not to feel fear is actually not something that they have a choice around, right? Yeah. Like, it's a part of their daily existence. That's true. And I know yeah. that, that Pussy Riot and you and your work with Pussy Riot, I'm thinking about the video that you, that you all did, uh, I Can't Breathe, a tribute to Eric Garner, right? Oh, yeah. And this is, this is a question that I have about your work, and you're creating work about all kinds of subjects. You're creating work about anti-black racism, about immigration, about violence against Palestinian folks, against undocumented folks, LGBTQ folks. And I'm wondering how you approach creating work across difference, especially as a transnational artist and also as a white woman. Um, how do I approach? Um, we got out of um, grocery store in New York, and we found ourselves accidentally on rally that were dedicated to Eric Garner. Yeah. That's how we ended up writing this song because we felt not like fear, but we felt more like irritation about this system that allows situations like that to happen. And um, so the next thing we knew, we um, ended up in studio writing a song dedicated to Eric Garner. And, um, I mean, you asked, um, I mean, if I, if I really feel like I have right to support people who are from different groups or different nationality or different races than I am, and um, I am pretty stubborn about that, that I, I have right to support, because I think we are really lacking of solidarity between different groups and different identities. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to be scared of each other. And, you know, sometimes, let's say, if somebody is talking, like if man is trying to support my rights and he's not getting it fully, I, I wouldn't tell him that, look, just, just be silent. Like, I, I, I like that he's trying to do it, and I will come to him and try to fix, like, if I don't like something, I'm like, yeah, like, look, you don't understand this and this and this. And the same thing when I'm trying to support Black Lives Matter movement, and I'm not a person of color, but I, I, if I don't get some things right, just don't reject me, don't tell me that I, I'm, I'm, I'm racist, I'm not. But um, just just tell me how to fix my mind. And mm. I'm, I'm ready, I, I think we need more openness and more solidarity. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hear that. And the same thing work uh, for me with different countries, like when I made a Make America Great Again music video against Trump, um, some people were like, yeah, but it's not, it's not your business what is going on in America. But I think, um, I mean, we are living on one planet, right? And what if what happens in one place affects directly what happens in another? And obviously Vladimir Putin is so happy right now that uh, Trump is in power. Uh, and, you know, overall, 
in the end of the story, we all have to deal with global issues, like, for example, climate change. And you know that the, 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 the way how Donald Trump is treating this issue, it affects the whole planet. So it definitely, my business was going on with Donald Trump, mm -hmm. <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. Yeah. How have you, as an independent artist, and then also working in the collective of Pussy Riot, how do you come, you know, in, in endeavoring to enact global solidarity, right? You talked about solidarity. And as a transnational artist, really, you're talking about global solidarity. I do. The videos that you're creating and also, you know, the writings that you are creating, the things that you're saying. So how do you navigate um, cultural miscommunications or critiques that might come up as a result of that work? <sighs> Um, crying sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, but it, it is pretty natural because you, if you're new for to, to, to the space, but you, um, you you can make mistakes. You can make you can have misunderstandings. But again, um, you know, sometimes I, I'm rejected because of that. But it's it's pretty sad. Um, 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 I, I like more when people are approaching and and trying to. Um, tell me what is important for this local area. Like, for example, when we came to Australia, we were approached by local feminists and activists for immigration rights, and uh, they told us, actually, that immigration centers in Australia is something like Russian prisons. And, um, you know, I celebrate these attempts to communicate from one activist to another. We need more of that because, you know, when our governments are failing to communicate with each other or it looks like we're coming back to a Cold War paradigm. Mm. And, yeah, we definitely need to establish these communications. So, yeah, in Australia, the next day uh, after I met this, those feminists, uh, I was about to speak at Sydney Opera House and um, people wanted me to talk just about Putin and just about oppressive regime of Vladimir Putin, which is true. But I started to talk um, about Australian immigration centers. Mm -hmm. And it probably wasn't comfortable for some of people who invited me, but still, it's, it is important. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there is, I, don't have, I don't have any ultimate strategy. I think it's just being open and being ready to hear what people have, have to say on, on this pod. Um, like, for example, when we were talking at Senate of United States, um, we just got news that Cecil McMillan, uh, an uh, Occupy Wall Street activist, uh, she was detained, um, she was arrested, and she was facing seven years in jail because she um, supposedly uh, elbowed a police officer who arre was arresting her and grabbed her by the breast. Now, nah, man, I, I would elbow him for sure. I'm not sure if she did it, but I would do it. And um, and so again, we were supposed to talk just about um, Russian criminal system at the Senate, and maybe it wasn't comfortable for all parties involved that we started to talk about Cecilia McMillan, who who was uh, American political prisoner, mm -hmm. and she was in Rikers at the time. Um, and then after that, we came to Rikers Island, and uh, we met her. And she told us about um, real conditions in Rikers Island. Um, yeah, and it just this kind of acts of solidarity. Yeah, they can they can um, they can help us. 
Yeah, I'm hearing you talk about a willingness to engage in difficult conversations, mm. a willingness to really listen to the input from folks that are bringing it to you, and also to allow the people that are experiencing those oppressions to be the experts of their own stories, yeah. right? And trusting that they are. You're better with concept than I am. No, no, no. <laughs> I know. I'm just repeating back what, I, what I'm hearing from you, yeah. But I mean, I think that last step is a really crucial one, right? Is like making sure, and as artists, you know, this is a, a topic that is up in general that I ask myself a lot all the time too, yeah. uh, around who has the right to create what work mm -hmm. and in whose mouth does the works that we create belong. And I think ultimately that last part that I referenced to around definitely making sure that the people experiencing the violence and the impressions that we're speaking to remain the experts of their own stories of seems to be an essential function of that, right? You don't want to talk for them. Yeah, you, yeah. you want to help them. but. I mean, every time when I, I'm standing in front of a decision to talk about issue or not to talk, I decide for myself that I need to talk. I mean, even if I will not be right. We, we don't have to be so trapped in this fear of making mistakes. Absolutely. That's yeah. fine to make mistakes. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And how do we create a culture in which we're engaged in dialogues as yeah. opposed to stopping dialogues? Exactly. Because right now, like, I mean, thinking about Facebook, which is like a hyena's den, right? Making a mistake, the cost is really, really high, yeah. especially in a public forum. Um, and at the same time, the mistakes that some people make have greater weight than the mistakes that other people make mm -hmm. and impact communities of folks in, in different ways. Yeah, I totally hear you. I want to um, switch because we have just another couple of minutes to a question that I think is really important, which is how do you nourish and sustain yourself doing <laughs> this work right now? How do I? Um, I drink a lot of coffee. Um, yes. I mean, <laughs> Your coffee, your coffee got <laughs> taken away from you before you came on stage. It was tragic. Yeah, I, I couldn't take it with me. Um, I, mean, <laughs> just, um, I think the most important thing for me is just uh, keep being um, engaged in, uh, in, in in social activity because you know everything is pretty dark right now. And you know sometimes as an activist, I ask myself questions like, "Well, um, am I doing something right?" Because like, it doesn't seem like it, everything is moving forward something great, I mean, it's it, it, quite the opposite. So you're starting to be depressed. And you know, I have these feelings too. It's not like I'm just positive all the time. I'm happy, I have bad time. Like I have mood swings and you know, like as everybody. So, and then I, I found out that you, it moves you towards uh, isolation. Mm. And you're just isolated in the world of hopelessness and you're like, oh yeah, and my country is going through hard times, and I'm going through hard times. But you know, the moment you just step out and really start talking to people is just like magic. Mm. So I mean, it's not like it's a new idea, but it really helps me. Yeah, it's kind of what you were referencing it before, which is staying involved, staying in the streets, mm -hmm. taking back the streets, making sure that we're definitely interacting with folks to counter that sense of isolation. Yeah, literally, just, you know, every time when I feel sad, I, I think like, I, I should make a work of art that mm. involves a lot of people, so it's just collective work. And, you know, even even the beginning of the story, you feel like you're discouraged, you don't have energy, but you have to know for sure that in the end of the work, you will have much more energy because you will see that all these people, they, they're ready to make input in your work. Like, for example, two weeks ago, I, I made a... Um, music video, which we've done illegally, obviously, on the streets of Moscow. We didn't release it yet, but we are editing it right now. 
Um, so and uh, I was I was I was not sure if uh, a lot of people would agree to be part of um, Pussy Riot's music video because what we went through, and I'm I'm not sure that people are ready to go to prison just for take being part of Pussy Riot. But you know, I ended up having a lot of really great talented kids, like 17, 20 years old, and they were aware that it is dangerous activity, but they're still willing to sacrifice to take this risk, and you know, that's the biggest reward. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I ended up being much more inspired in the end of that work than in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. And you've said that anyone can be Pussy Riot. Right? Yeah, like that's, that's one true. of the tenets of the group. Anyone can be pussy, right? It's not even a group. It's more like a movement. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more. Tell me more. So we started. Um, we we didn't want to show our faces. It wasn't it wasn't our thing. Um, you know, we we had to reveal our, our faces in court. Just as I said before, we didn't have an opportunity to wear a mask in court. Um, but the whole idea was to focus more on. Um, principles and ideology than on personality because it looks like for, for a lot of political movements it all comes down to just like whose cock is bigger and, I, and it's not it's not really quite what we decided to start it um, and so we still maintain this principle and uh, my face is uncovered and Masha's face is uncovered, Kaja's face is uncovered and um, yeah, but we still have a lot of uh, members of Pussy Riot who prefer to stay anonymous and um, they're totally fine with us talking here with open faces, but yeah, they, they can do their actions with covered faces. Yeah, how has that changed the work to take away the anonymous component of it? to be public. It didn't feel nice. And like, I, I, I was, like, even the, when they arrested us, I, I was rejecting that I'm part of Pussy Red for a while because I thought oh, maybe they will let us go soon mm. and it will not be connected that I'm part of Pussy Red. Um, anyway, it had to happen. Um, I mean, I would say that anonymity gives you um, a lot of privileges. And I'm still looking with jealousy on Banksy because, <laughs> because he's still anonymous. <laughs> Mm. Maybe he, he was living in a less harsh political environment, so he wasn't arrested and put in through trial. But unfortunately, it happened with us, so now we're dealing with that. Mm. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, yeah, it works. But I, I, <laughs> when, they, when they just uh, released us from jail, we had to deal with things like, oh, should I put co cosmetics on myself or not? And then it, it, it was never a question before because it's easy to just have a mask and just so you don't think about things like that, like hair, makeup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And definitely once as you become more in the public eye and you're a woman, and especially if you're a woman by heteronormative beauty standards that's considered beautiful, <laughs> the expectation is that you're going to present yourself in a way that ultimately remains pleasing yeah. to what people's definition of celebrity is. That's How true. do you think about that in the creation of your videos? I, I was crashed by that. <laughs> I was, like, in 2014, I just felt miserable all the time because I would just, I would attend um, things like, so like, I, I had ridiculous combinations in my life. Let's say in the morning I'm going to Rikers Island, so I'm just wearing what I wear right now. And then in the end of the day, I, I'm supposed to go to, 
vanity fair after party or something like that and have an interview there. And I'm, I'm coming in this outfit and all people are like, what? And I, but you know, in the end of the story, I, I found out that, I mean, I, I have to just reject it and I, I have to just wear what I'm comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And that's the best, that's definition of beauty to me when a person is comfortable with what he's or he's doing and how he or she's looking. Right. Because, right. you know, like when you're just so concerned with the way how you look, you cannot really think of something else. And, you know, you, you know all those people, like both sexes, they, they exist. But maybe it's fun for them, but it's not fun for me to be that, that creature. <laughs> right, right. Because for some folks, it is fun to be fabulous or high femme, or, you know, so many other things. Mm, and are fabulous, about, yeah. But <laughs> also talking about, like, body diversity, right? You know, how folks are able to be witnessed and validated by the space that they're in. They're free to time. be, yeah, they're, they're free to do whatever they want. But it is, it, for me, it's fun to shift, shift it. And, you know, sometimes I would just play things, like, I would, I, I, I would think, like, can I actually... I'll be, uh, you know, get interest from this person who is normally looks for, like, girls who are super normative. Um, mm -hmm. And, like, can I, can I possibly do that? Like, being myself, not changing myself? And I can. And so, yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. You know, it's, it's, all, it's all about your ideas, and I think it's more about your vitality and it's just energy that you're projecting more than about you wearing high heels or not. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm wearing heels, I totally hear they're you. They're not, they're not high. <laughs> no, I, I mean, and no shame though, right? <laughs> like, I mean, if you want to wear heels and a boot, because that's the other thing that we do, yeah. the opposite side of that, is then all of a sudden we start saying like, oh, okay, well, if you dress a certain way, then you can't be a person that experiences sexual assault. Or if you're a person that likes to um, talk about your kinky lifestyle or a sex worker, we're going to pathologize you as a person that ultimately is playing into this hetero gaze as opposed to validating and acknowledging and honoring the choices that people make for themselves, which is what I hear you saying. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is the same thing about solidarity. And um, I, I had problems with, um, with, with, you know, some feminist groups because I, I would show up and they're gathering with uh, makeup and they like, no, you cannot be part of us. And I'm like, whoa. Yeah. That's strange, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, super strange. As a last question, <laughs> I know that we need to wrap up, but as a last question, so you talk about everyone can be pussy riot. Mm -hmm. So here in this room, for the folks that are in this theater, how does one incite a pussy riot? I mean, it's, it's, it's up to you. Um, it, we don't have definition, right? So I cannot give you principles. Yeah. So, and, and I don't have... Um, I mean, I don't have a list of members or anything like that. There's but not I a handbook backstage that you're going to be signing later, <laughs> passing out to everyone. What? I said there's not a handbook backstage that you're going to sign later. It, it, it will <laughs> happen, actually. Handbook, yeah. Well, we're preparing rules for the rules breakers. But, <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, coming back to your previous... Like, like, Again, I'm messing around. Like, coming back to your previous question <laughs> about like, how I'm handling and how I'm navigating... Um, I'm, 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 I'm not giving lessons or, you know, like just like real rules to people, like, oh, you have to follow this and that. And like, I, I think we had too much 
folks who are trying to teach us how to live. Yeah. So I would rather share my experience and say, like, see, it worked in this, like, this didn't work. You may try to do it and or you may try to find another road. Yeah. It's, you know, like, this is the way how I treat my kid. And, like, if the, the fact that I'm doing it in this way doesn't mean that you have to do it in this way. Yeah. And actually, I'm challenging her and saying that you're approaching your teenage years and it will be really hard work for you to rebel against me because how you're going to do it? <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to vote for Vladimir Putin or and what? And she's like, no. <laughs> so, yeah, that's fun. Um, I mean, you can start from... Um, you know, purchasing purchasing this uh, beanie and uh, cu cutting eyes and uh, that's it. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, what flashed in my brain is like you know at Halloween with the there's like the carving of pumpkins happens and there's all the diagrams with the like here is your mask and then you cut out the eyes and you cut out the mouth. I know all that kind of stuff <laughs> is ridiculous. But that, that talks like leads back to what we were talking about before, which I think you're referencing here, which is commodifying our reactions of resistance. Like ultimately we've been conditioned to think in regards to marketing, which is what my brain just did, in regards to <laughs> capitalist strategy, right? Which is exactly what my brain just did. Uh -huh. And ultimately how, what I hear you saying is that Pussy Riot is a framework that ultimately is claimable by a person that decides they want to claim it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, our job is to always escape from identities and being a pirate and always have fluid identity, like political, gender, sexual identity and I think if you if you're really performative about your um, existence then it makes you really valuable activist because you may through go through different lives and you mm -hmm. can you can share different experiences with different groups of people it makes you really sympathetic to people mm -hmm. so um, I'm not big fan of definitions I'm yeah. more like you know Wittgenstein type of definitions with no definitions yeah um, and, uh, you know, again, coming back to Judith Butler from who we started all, all, all this conversation, you know, her, her idea of um, parody mm -hmm. as the main framework for activism. That I, so I think Pussy Riot is something about fluid identity and being, um, hu like, treating things with humor and uh, making lots of parodies of yeah. stuff. So I think it's pretty broad definition, right? But so you, you definitely can be pussy red. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. <laughs>